Our Old Testament reading comes from the prophet Isaiah. It's chapter 45, and it's split into two sections. Firstly, verses 1 to 7, and then we pick up again at verse 18. So Isaiah 45. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armour, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down the gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honour, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know that there is none besides me, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Picking up again at verse 18. For this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says... I am the Lord, and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in the land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Gather together and come assemble, you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be. Present it. Let them, t let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me. A righteous God and a saviour, there is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. So we'll continue our Bible readings with the New Testament, the book of Matthew, chapter 2, beginning at the first verse. A famous passage, the visit of the Magi to Bethlehem. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and had come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi 
secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they'd seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And we continue in the New Testament. Acts 17, 16 to 23. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him to a meeting of the Arapagus, where they said to him, may we know this new teaching it is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ideas. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Arapagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. From time to time, I lead small groups on tours of the British Museum, focusing particularly on artifacts there that are relevant to biblical studies. It started many years ago, when I used to bring groups down from my university classes in Cardiff, and I've done a few since coming to London. Uh, one of my former students from Cardiff uh, asked me to then do uh, a group with somebody from her church. And I did a group from Tuesday lunch earlier this year. It's always good fun, and there is a surprisingly large amount of material in the British Museum that's relevant to helping us understand the Bible. And one of the objects I always try and point out is a small baked clay cylinder. It's a bit like a kind of large toilet roll tube covered in tiny writing. Uh, it's known as the Cyrus Cylinder, and it's one of the great treasures of the British Museum. It was discovered in 1879, but it actually dates from the 6th century before Christ. It spent the intervening millennia buried in the ground in Babylon in modern-day Iraq. 
Actually, it returned back to the Near East a few years ago in 2012. Uh, I remember this because I brought some people to look at it and it wasn't there. And it had gone on a four-month loan to Iran and it was displayed in Tehran. And uh, during its time on display in Tehran, it really was the tourist attraction of the city. A quarter of a million people came to view it. And this little clay cylinder has been described intriguingly as the first charter of human rights. So what is it that's so special about this little clay object, maybe the sort of size of a bottle of wine? Christmas is showing on me there. Um, well, the cylinder is inscribed in Babylonian cuneiform with an account by Cyrus, the king of Persia, detailing his conquest of Babylon in 539 BC. And it speaks of his capture of the final Babylonian king, uh, a guy called Nabonidus. And uh, in terms of correlating this with the biblical story, it takes us into the final few years of the Israelite exile in Babylon. So I don't know if you remember, but uh, in 597 BC, uh, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed Jerusalem and took the Jews into exile in Babylon. And they were there for a generation, and then it ended under Cyrus's rule in 539. If you were around for my sermon a few weeks ago on the massacre of the innocents, you may remember that we were looking at the events surrounding the start of the exile, as first the Assyrians and then the Babylonians conquered the country of Israel. Well, the Cyrus Cylinder takes us to the other end of the exile, to, to its ending. And it takes us right into the time of the prophet who wrote the text of our Old Testament reading. Prophet often called Isaiah. Um, <coughs> probably the book of Isaiah is three separate prophecies, and the first part was written by Isaiah. This is from the second part, so it's probably in the tradition of Isaiah. We don't know who actually wrote it. But anyway, the, the cylinder, the Cyrus cylinder, is something like a cross between a piece of propaganda and a historical document. So it describes all the good things that good king Cyrus has done uh, for the inhabitants of uh, Babylon, whom he has just conquered. So it's very much, I've conquered you, and now I'm going to tell you how brilliant it was that I've conquered you. Uh, one of the things it talks about is how Cyrus has uh, enacted a policy of returning the images of foreign gods which previous kings of Babylon, such as Nabonidus, had collected together in Babylon. So the Babylonians had had a policy of going out, conquering somewhere, and then bringing people back into exile and bringing the, the idols and the local gods back to Babylon. He kind of gathered it all back to Babylon, the, the Nebuchadnezzar and Nabonidus and the like. Cyrus had the opposite policy. Cyrus said, gods and people are happier in their own countries. So he returned the gods back to their localities. He returned people groups back to their localities. Uh, there is a certain irony here, because the Cyrus cylinder itself is an object displaced from its land of origin. And there are those who are calling for it to be permanently restored to Iran. And yet it famously contains the story of how Cyrus returned revered objects from his time back to their land of origin. The cylinder also tells us how Cyrus arranged for the restoration of foreign temples, paying for temples to be rebuilt, how he organized the return of people groups to their homelands, and this includes the, the Jews. 
Uh, they aren't mentioned by name on the cylinder, but their return to Palestine following their years of exile in Babylon was certainly part of this policy that the Cyrus Cylinder speaks about. And one of the fascinating things about the cylinder is that in it, Cyrus claims to have achieved this victory over the Babylonian king Nabonidus with the help of the Babylonian god Marduk. Now, Cyrus, of course, wasn't Babylonian. He was Persian. It's quite different. But he claimed that the Babylonian god Marduk was fighting on his side when he conquered the Babylonian king. So here we have, this is where this theology starts to get a bit interesting. Here we have a Persian king who'd have grown up worshipping gods drawn from the pre-Zoroastrian group of gods, including Mithras, who later became so popular with the Romans. But when he conquers Babylon, he claims in the Cyrus Cylinder that he did it with the help of none other than Marduk, the god of Babylon. One of the things about the ancient pantheon was that each tribe, each country, each region had their own gods. So it kind of makes sense for Cyrus to be claiming the Babylonian god Marduk's support when he becomes the ruler of Babylon. Because his Persian gods that he'd grown up worshipping would have stayed behind in Persia. So when he went from Persia to Babylon, he has to start using the Babylonian gods if he's to rule in Babylon. By the same token, there's not a lot of point in keeping the gods from, say, Mesopotamia in Babylon. They might as well go back to their own temples in their own countries of origin. So Cyrus has this policy of sending captured gods back home with grants to rebuild local temples. So you can kind of see how Cyrus's theology that gods live in different places leads to him adopting Marduk and him sending everybody else back home. The story of the rebuilding of the Jewish temple that we find in the book of Ezra clearly fits into the story at this point. So there's some really interesting correlations between what we know about history and what we find in the Old Testament record. But our Old Testament reading for this morning isn't from quite that far into the future. Uh, the Jewish prophet of Isaiah 45 is actually writing in the final year or so of the Israelite exile. So he's writing in exile and he can see that the Babylonians are growing weak and that Cyrus of Persia is growing in strength and was starting to pose a threat to the Babylonian uh, kind of monopoly on the area. And so Isaiah hails Cyrus not as an agent of the Persian gods, nor as an agent of Marduk, but as an agent of none other than Yahweh himself. Gosh, everybody's claiming their own god in this one, aren't they? The way Isaiah 45 puts it, Cyrus is Yahweh's anointed one. Cyrus is Yahweh's Messiah. Yahweh, of course, being the god of the Jews. Isaiah 45 says that Cyrus, inspired by the Jewish god is coming to bring release and freedom for the people of the Lord, to overthrow the evil powers of the Babylonian Empire, to bring release to the captives so they can return to the promised land. Just as Cyrus claimed Marduk's support in conquering Babylon, so Isaiah, the prophet in the tradition of Isaiah, ascribes Cyrus's actions to his god, Yahweh. You might start to suspect here, if you're a cynical like me, that history is always written by the winners who will spin their stories to claim whatever god they can to justify the outcome of their endeavours. But maybe I'm being too cynical. However, this idea that a non-Israelite 
might be the servant of Israel's God, has found an interesting parallel in religious responses to President Trump. Following Trump's announcement earlier this year that the US Embassy in Israel is going to move from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu remarked as follows. I want to tell you that the Jewish people have a long memory. So we remembered the proclamation of the great King Cyrus the Great, Persian King, 2,500 years ago. He proclaimed that Jewish exiles in Babylon could come back and rebuild our temple in Jerusalem. So, Benjamin Netanyahu is making a direct comparison between Trump and Cyrus. Netanyahu's suggestion that Trump may be compared to Cyrus because of his specific policies affecting Israel gives his analogy a unique twist. But did you know American evangelicals have been comparing Trump to Cyrus since he first started to stand for the presidency? They argue that just as Cyrus, scarcely a devotee of the God of Israel, just as Cyrus served as God's agent by authorizing Jewish exiles in Babylon to return to the promised land and rebuild the temple, so the narcissistic and morally flawed Trump can advance the causes of the evangelical community and, by extension, their country. So if you are wondering how Christians can overlook Trump's moral failures and still support him, here is the strong theological rationale. He's another Cyrus. Doesn't matter if he's not a Christian. Doesn't matter what his morality is. He's doing God's work anyway. And if you're wondering how Christians can offer uncritical support to the Israeli occupation of Palestine, here is also a strong ideological rationale for that. In both these scenarios, as in so much else in public theology, pragmatism wins and the ends justifies the means. But maybe I'm being too cynical again. Let's go back to the 6th century BC. One of the implications of Jewish monotheism was that other gods have no validity. So whereas the polytheistic Cyrus could happily adopt a policy of when in Babylon do as the Babylonians do, the Jews didn't have this option. Their perspective was that if good happens, it happens because of Yahweh. Even if those doing the good think that they're doing it in the name of Marduk or indeed some other god. Now, we might have a conversation about whether we think God ever actually wills warfare and wholesale destruction, but that's a conversation for another day. As far as the prophet of Isaiah 45 was concerned, anything that threatened to break the stranglehold of Babylon was unambiguously a good thing. So when Cyrus marched in with his armies to sack Babylon and send people home, he welcomed Cyrus as Yahweh's anointed. The proclamation of the Lord as the one and only God the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one besides whom there is no other, leads the prophet of Isaiah to an interesting place theologically, which is the recognition that God is at work beyond Israel, bringing his purposes to fruition even through people who do not know him by name. Yahweh is working through Cyrus, says Isaiah. Earlier this year, I participated in one of those Facebook challenges of posting the covers of 10 books that have influenced me the most. 
And two of mine were by C.S. Lewis. One was the Screwtape Letters. The other was The Last Battle, the Apocalypse from the Narnia series. In The Last Battle, the follower of the eagle-headed god Tash who is clearly an Assyrian deity, by the way. If you ever go to the British Museum and look at the Assyrian stone reliefs, you can see these uh, kind of stone gods, and then you look at the way in which Tash is illustrated in the Naniad, and you find he's very clearly drawing on the, the Assyrian stuff. Anyway, uh, a follower of Tash uh, finds himself confronted with Aslan. The Tash, uh, Aslan, if you don't know the story, he's the lion who's the kind of the Jesus figure in the stories. The Tash worshipper says to Aslan, Alas, Lord, I am no son of thine, but a servant of Tash. But Aslan answers, Child, all the service thou hast done to Tash, I account as service done to me. The Tash worshipper then continues the story. Then, by reason of my great desire for wisdom and understanding, I overcame my fear and questioned the glorious one and said, Lord, is it then true that thou and Tash are one? The lion growled so that the earth shook and said, It is false, not because he and I are one, but because we are opposites. I take to me the services which thou hast done to him. For I and he are of such different kinds that no service which is vile can be done to me and none which is not vile can be done to him. Now this is not unproblematic because within the world of Narnia, the Calamines, who worship Tash, have a strong similarity to the stereotypical caricature of Arab Muslims in our world. The Catholic theologian Paul Ford has said, C.S. Lewis was a man of his time and socioeconomic class. Like many English men of this era, Lewis was unconsciously but regrettably unsympathetic to things and people Middle Eastern. Thus, he sometimes engages in exaggerated stereotyping in contrasting things Narnian and things Calamine. He intends this in a broadly comic way, almost vaudevillian, but in our post-September the 11th, 2001 world, he would, I am sure, want to reconsider this insensitivity. The outspoken atheist critic and novelist Philip Pullman, who is brilliant, by the way, has called the Chronicles of Narnia blatantly racist. So, we must tread with care, because I would not for one moment want to suggest that Allah and Yahweh are opposites. Quite the opposite of that, in fact. The objects of worship in Islam, Judaism, and Christianity seem to me to have far more in common than otherwise. But I would also be avoiding the issue if I wrote off the significance for me as a young Christian coming to realize that the service offered in the name of a differently understood and differently named God might be counted as service by the God that I worshipped. And of course it occurred to me that maybe the corollary was also true. What if my faithful service to my God were similarly welcomed by the God of those who worship their God? differently to me. Well, this is the insight of Isaiah 45. The actions of Cyrus, committed in the name of Marduk, are accepted by Yahweh. Because the Lord of Israel is the Lord of the whole earth, and nothing that is good can be anything other than acceptable to him, regardless of who does it or in whose name it is done. 
And so the prophet of Israel proclaims that God is continually at work in the world, overthrowing chaos and bringing order to the land, just as he called order on the chaos of the deep when calling creation itself into being. The chapter we had read in Isaiah ends with a proclamation to all people in all nations to the ends of the earth that they should turn to the Lord and be saved. And the prophet has the Lord himself speak in language later echoed by Paul in his letter to the Romans. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. When Paul quotes that in Romans, it's not Yahweh to whom every knee shall bow, it's Jesus Christ who commands the worship of every knee and the allegiance of every tongue. Because the testimony of the New Testament is that it is Jesus, not Cyrus or any other modern-day Cyrus-like figure who is the Lord's anointed. It is Jesus who is the Lord's anointed. It is Jesus who is the Messiah sent by God to bring freedom to those in captivity and release to those who are oppressed. The language that Isaiah uses of Cyrus is used in the New Testament of Jesus. And we see this in the story of the wise men coming to worship Jesus. Wise men from the east, from Persia, from the country of Cyrus, probably Zoroastrian philosophers, the direct heirs of the pantheon of gods worshipped by Cyrus, they come to worship Jesus, led by a system of astrology very alien to us and condemned in the Old Testament, yet they come anyway. And their adoration of the Christ child is acceptable, and their gifts are received by the mother of God. And we see the same thing in the story of Paul in the Areopagus in Athens, who proclaims Jesus as the one already being worshipped by the Athenians as their unknown God. In fact, we have this story immortalised in our building, in one of our stained glass windows. Those of you on this side of the building can see it. It's the end one up there. The founder of our church built into the architecture here a commitment to proclaiming God in the midst of a city where God is already at work. Paul says that the worship offered to the unknown God by those who worshipped the Athenian gods of Rome and Greece was, as far as he was concerned, acceptable to Jesus. Dare I say, the good that people do is good in God's eyes, regardless of the belief of the person that does it. All of which, I want to suggest, raises some interesting questions for those of us who seek to witness to Jesus Christ in the midst of a pluralistic world. What is our approach to be towards those who worship other gods? Do we condemn them? On what basis might we seek to proclaim our belief that there is only one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Does our belief in one God of all the earth rule out the possibility that others might know and worship the true God in ways that seem very alien or even unacceptable to us? What do we think we mean? 
when we speak of the mission of God to the world? Can we learn to see that God is at work in the world beyond our boundaries and borders, drawing all things and all people to himself, and that we and those like us are only a part of God's loving intent for all that exists? What do we think we're doing when we engage in evangelism? It's one of the core things that you have to do if you're going to be a Baptist. Trinitarian understanding of God, primacy of the local church in terms of decision-making, baptism of believers, and a commitment to evangelism. What if we think of the sharing of the good news of Jesus as being less about saving people from other forms of religion, agnosticism, or atheism, and instead as being more about inviting people to hear the good news of a God of love who enters into human affairs and lives to bring a new world of peace and justice into being, one life at a time. You see, I'm not sure the answers to these questions I've been chucking out are quite as clear-cut as many Christians would sometimes like them to be. And I think that the witness of Scripture is that we need to be very careful before we start condemning those whom we just don't understand. The testimony of the prophet of Isaiah 45 is that the spiritual world is not made up of a good God and a bad God competing for worship. There are not lots of gods presiding over different territories. Rather, there is one God and he is the Lord of the whole earth. And all that is good is acceptable to him, and all that is evil is abhorrent to him and comes under his judgment. And it is this one God, however he is known or worshipped, who comes to his people in Jesus, bringing liberation and freedom and good news. And it is the one God who sends the spirit of Jesus into the world to draw the nations to himself to the ends of the earth. And it is this one God that we worship in, dare I say it, willful defiance of all other claims to our allegiance. Let us pray. Great God of the whole earth, we come before you today to bring the needs of this planet. And we do so trusting that you are the God of Bangladesh that you are the God of the West Bank and Gaza, that you are the God of Paris, the God of Yemen, the God of South Sudan, the God of London, the God of Bloomsbury. We trust that you are God of the environment and of the climate, that you are God of the marginalized and the victim, God of the poor and the suffering, God of the well and the wealthy, God of the safe and secure. We trust that you are God of the whole earth. And we trust that you are our God and that we are your people. And so it is in trust that we, your people, cry out to you that the world is not the way it should be. Every day we see people diminished and distorted in their humanity from those living in war zones and being used as weapons in fights that are not of their making, to those dropping bombs and piloting drones, 
to those holding civilians hostage to ideologies of hatred and desperation, to those who could negotiate peace but whose national interest is better served by war. And we remember the example of Jesus, who sat and ate with outsiders and sinners, who received hospitality and gave friendship across borders and boundaries. We remember the baby in the manger receiving the gifts from those who were not from Israel. And so we commit ourselves to living differently, to seeing the person behind their presentation of themselves, to finding the image of the divine in each created being. Help us to open ourselves to those who worship in different ways to us. Release us from suspicion of the other and from fear of difference. May we learn to build bridges across divisions of faith, ethnicity and origin. Help us to open our eyes to the systems of oppression that enslave humanity. Through our prayers for others, may we find within ourselves the commitment and the courage to stand against those powers and principalities of wealth and patriarchy that subjugate women, constrict men, exclude children, disadvantage the marginalised and impoverish the vulnerable. And in a world where death always seems to get the final word on life, we recommit ourselves to the one who brings life to the living and hope to the dying. And so we stand in prayer alongside those who are sick, those who are diminished through dementia, those who are living with terminal illness. We pray for our friends and our families and for ourselves. May those who need courage be granted it. May those who seek peace discover it. May those who long for rest find it. Great God of the whole earth, may we find our purpose and completion in you. Amen. <laughs>